Good morning. As we're opening up our Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, I want to ask you, how has your morning at 6th Avenue been? Let's start with Sunday school. A little warm in there, wasn't it? When you try to take off the edge of the heat in the Sunday school room with all those bodies in there, you have to have the AC on. And because this church is 100 years old, the ACs that we have are not new and modern. They're old and loud, which means that when we turn them on, it makes it harder to hear the speaker, right? What about when you were walking in through our doors this morning over here, right, in this little foyer facing the street? How, how was that coming in? Were those doors locked when you tried to come in the church building? Yeah, that happened to some of you guys, right? That's a bummer. What about the, but at least when you got through the doors, you got in here, you got some of that good artisanal coffee, right, that we offer. What about Jonathan's service leading? That was kind of embarrassing, right? <laughs> totally wrong verse. Was he, was he dynamic and engaging enough for you? What about our music selection this morning? Amazing Grace, Glorify Thy Name, that new song, which feels like it has to be like 400 years old, right? Not to mention the lights are up, we only have a piano, right? People actually have to like look at you and hear you as you worship the Lord, that's kind of embarrassing. What about this sermon? You think it's going to be a short one? What if we've just fundamentally misunderstood what church is? What if the church isn't here to cater to you and to do everything perfectly with absolute precision? What if this isn't a performance? What if this is just a gathering of a bunch of really screwed up people who desperately need Jesus? None of this is part of my sermon. I just feel compelled to tell you that that's who we are and what we are at Sixth Avenue. And as we get ready to engage with God through his word, I hope that that's the posture that you have in your heart. Because if the posture in your heart that you have towards the church is, what can you do for me? That's the posture that you're going to have in your heart towards God. And you're going to hold him up to a standard that you've created and that therefore he cannot and will not fulfill. If nevertheless you understand that you are desperate before, the God and that, before God and that you need him and that he loves you and he desires to serve you and give you exactly what you need, even if you don't understand that it is what you need, well, then I think you are set up to really receive from God well this morning. Now, let's get to the sermon. Last week's sermon was a warning. Beware of false teachers, particularly false teachers who would lead you to believe that you can be made righteous with God by anything other than faith alone in Christ. This week's sermon is uh, the same thing. It's also a warning, back to back. Except in this week, the, the warning is not about false teachers out there. The warning is about false thinking in here and false feeling in here. So I have five points for you in this morning's sermon. I'm going to give them to you in advance and then give them to you as we go again. Point number one, Paul's humility Point number two, Paul's mindset. Point number three, Paul's confidence. Point number four, your maturity. And point number five, God's revelation. Let's read the text. The text that we're technically going to be working with is chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, but I think we need to follow Paul's logic starting all the way back in verse 8. So let's start there. I'll read aloud. You follow along with me. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I do press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. It's completely sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. Amen? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father God, we even see in this verse the promise that you will mature us in our thinking to help our thoughts, our views, our opinions line up with your truth. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will work that miracle in us as we listen attentively, hung, hungrily, eagerly, desperately to your word this morning, knowing that it's the only thing that can produce that which we want most in this life to be like your son Jesus. So we pray with hearts full of great hope and expectation for what you will do with us. Amen. Point number one, Paul's humility. So in verse 12, Paul says that he has not obtained this. What is the this that he has not obtained? Well, you can see if you keep reading, he says he has not obtained or attained perfection. Just look at verse 12 with me one more time. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. This perfection that Paul is talking about here is what he's been basically talking about since verses 8 through 11, where he talks about sacrificing everything in order to receive the resurrection of Christ, right? That's what the resurrection of Christ is all about. It's about being made perfect. Now, now Paul talks about this perfection in resurrection so passionately and so forcefully that he, he realizes that someone who's hearing this letter read out loud or someone who's reading it might mistakenly think that Paul has already achieved these things. He, they might think that, oh, he, he's an apostle. He's got an extra measure of grace from the Lord. Perhaps he's already reached perfection. So he takes a moment, pauses, says, listen, I want you guys to know I, I am not perfect. I have not reached that yet. Now, the application point I want to make here right off the bat is not really based on the point that Paul is making, but really on the fact that Paul realizes he needs to make it in the first place. You see, Paul is anticipating a potential misunderstanding in his readers, which is really half the battle of all good communication, especially good gospel communication, right? It's not about what you say and what you mean only. It's also about what people hear. How many of us have been in the situation, we've had a scenario where we've said something that we thought was exceptionally clear, only to realize from someone's response that we have in fact been very misunderstood. It's like half of all fights in marriage, right? As a pastor, I can't tell you how often I've like, been like X, Y, Z. It couldn't be any clearer. Obviously, what I mean is coming through to the whole congregation. And then people will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, you know, when you said ABC, that, that didn't make sense to me. And I'll say... I don't know how this happened, right? Good communication is not only making sure that you understand what you're trying to say, but also closing every door of misunderstanding to those with whom you are communicating. And that's what Paul is doing here. I mean, as I go back and I read verses 8 through 11, I don't perceive in Paul, I don't read in Paul any inkling of an idea that he has arrived at a state of sinless perfection. I don't understand him to be saying that at all. Nevertheless, he understands that the potential to be misunderstood exists, and he understands the serious consequences of what will happen if he is misunderstood about this. The church is going to be full of a bunch of people who are going to think that they can reach perfection, which means they will either be falsely self-righteous, naively believing that they have attained perfection, Or they will be crushed and broken thinking, I'll never be able to be like Paul who has reached perfection, but I can't do it myself. He realizes that this is such a big danger that he has to shut the doors of miscommunication. So 
you know, my, my application for us is I just pray that we strive to be these kinds of communicators, that we have this kind of wisdom when we talk with our spouses, when we communicate with our children, when we interact with our fellow church members, when we share the gospel with those who don't know it, right? It's not just about whether or not you think you communicated the gospel clearly. It's about making sure that the people you're communicating the gospel to are actually hearing you. That's what we want, right? That's what evangelism is. We're trying to persuade people with the truth of the gospel. In order for them to be persuaded, they actually have to understand what we're saying. So I pray that we can communicate like Paul. Point number two, Paul's mindset. Paul's mindset. So the point is pretty clear. Paul has not reached perfection. Why? Well, because Jesus never promised perfection in the here and now, right? That's kind of the whole reason that we look forward to the resurrection, Only when we are resurrected with Christ will we have the new and glorious and perfect life of Christ, right? Only then will we be utterly perfected, which means, wouldn't you agree, that we can just sit back, relax, rest on our laurels, and sort of coast our way lackadaisically to heaven because perfection is not even possible anyways, right? Wrong, yeah. Paul says that even though he hasn't fully become like Christ, he presses on. He presses on to make it his own. Look at verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I just want us to pause here and consider the counterintuitive logic of the gospel And how at odds it is with our fallen human logic, right? Our our fallen human logic would say, well, if I can't be perfect in the flesh, if I can't be perfect until the resurrection, I won't even try, right? Why even bother? But gospel logic says, I may not be able to be exactly perfectly like Christ until the last day, but I'm going to press on striving for that goal with every ounce of my being until that day arrives. Why? Because it's a worthy goal. So in verses 12 through 14, Paul explains this phenomenon, this this desire that all Christians should have wrought in us by the Spirit by using the metaphor of a race. Right? He he says that, that all Christians are running a race, and when we're running this race, we have to run it in a particular way. We have to refuse to look back because we are laser focused on the prize that is ahead of us, right? That's how you run a race. You don't look back, you look at the prize. And then he says that the prize that we are running for is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's one of those phrases when you come to it in scripture, you're like, the upward call. I mean, that sounds good, right? That, who's not down for that? But it doesn't make immediate sense to us. But if you just do like a quick little Google search of that phrase, like five different cross-references come up. If you go on like Bible Gateway and just type the call of Christ or the upward call, you'll get all these cross-references. So here's what it means to run for the upward call. In the rest of the New Testament, the call of God in Christ is all about being drawn through the gospel into the glory of Christ himself. What is the upward call? It's God calling us through the gospel, into the glory of Christ himself. Let me just give you some scriptures. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Right? Live like this because God has been so good to you, so kind to you, so gracious to you, to call you into his glory. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. To this he has called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore you. 
When you understand what this upward call is, it really brings Paul's race metaphor to life, right? Paul says that he strains forward like a runner running into the wind. He's, he's running with all of his might. He's racing as fast as possible, as hard as he can go to get the prize. You don't run after an unworthy prize. That's why I stopped doing jujitsu competitions. I would go and spend like $100 to register and you got to drive there and you're competing with a bunch of weekend warriors in some high school gym that's like a million degrees. You lose out time with your family. Okay, but isn't it worth it though when you get the prize? The prize is a little plastic coin. You know? I I remember I I went and I won a couple tournaments and I looked around and I was like, this? This is what I'm competing for? This is why I've trained so hard? This is why I lost a day with my family? This is why I spent $100? This prize is not worthy. But when you think about the race that we're running and the prize that we have at the end of the race, it's the most worthy thing in the universe, right? Infinitely better than some trophy. Think about a trophy, right? A trophy is merely symbolic. Now, if some of you have like a trophy shelf at home, like with lighting in your den and you like lead everyone who comes into your house past it so that you can show them your high school accomplishments, this is a rebuke to you. (laughs) A trophy, it symbolizes, it says on this day, under these conditions, in this domain, you were the best at this thing. So you can do a lot of things with your trophy. You can hold it, you can polish it, you can put it on a shelf for everyone to see, or you can do the modern technological equivalent of that. You can post it on social media for everyone to see. You can drink champagne out of it. But a trophy cannot bring you into an experience with itself. A trophy is an inanimate object. It's impersonal by its very nature. A trophy is merely a symbol that is meant to communicate something that has happened in the past, which means that it cannot be experienced in any meaningful way in the present or in the future. Now, you might be thinking, well, okay, Sean, you know, I get it. I'm not going to compete for a trophy. What is this? You know, the sixth grade. But what about a cash prize? Isn't that a worthy prize for me to run for, to compete for? Maybe. Cash is, is, it's a little bit better than a trophy in that it's not merely symbolic, right? Cash actually has utility. You can use money to do things, right? But there are some drawbacks. For example, uh, once the money is spent, it's gone. Cash is nice, but it runs out. And you only really enjoy money because of what it can do for you. I know like the image of like Scrooge McDuck jumping off of the diving board into the, the coins, which by the way would like really hurt. <laughs> I know that that's like, it seems fun, but like you would only enjoy doing that once, right? You don't actually enjoy money for itself. You enjoy it for what it can do for you, right? Money can bring satisfaction when you exchange it for something. Sometimes what you exchange it for is immaterial, right? You exchange it for security, For power, you can also exchange it for goods and services. But the point is, we really just use money to get what we actually want. Now consider the prize that Paul says we have in the gospel. The prize that we have for running this race is Christ himself in the fullness of his glory. You know, this is what makes a Christian a Christian, right? What makes a Christian a Christian is not that he keeps all the rules. It's that what he wants at the very core of his being, deep, deep down at the bottom of his desires, what he wants more than anything is to be like Christ and to be with Christ. And thankfully, those two things are bound up together in the gospel. When you're with him, you will be like him. Which means that this is the best prize ever. We couldn't ask for a better prize. Listen to the way that Paul talks about this gospel promise in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be 
glorified with him. We will be glorified with Christ. And it's not going to be a different glory. It's not going to be leftover glory, hand-me-down glory, Sam's choice glory. The glory that we will receive as our prize will be the very glory of Christ himself. This is why we look forward to the resurrection. At least it should be. This is what our new glorified bodies are all about. Yes, it's, it's going to be nice to not have to worry about knee pain and GI issues and, you know, difficult emotions. But what we're looking forward to most is not the absence of these issues. We're looking towards the complete recreation of our being by Christ and his glory, right? We're going to shed this, this perishable, dishonorable flesh that's been ruined by sin and we're going to rise up in a new corporeal form wherein our very being will be saturated with Christ and his glory. The glory of Christ is the emanation of every good, true, and beautiful thing in God himself. It is the very essence of his holiness. It is pure, it is eternal, it is everlasting, and it is undiluted joy. That's the prize at the end of the race. Is this not worth running for? Think about how much of your life you spend running, chasing things, and then you get them and they suck. They're just worthless. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say suck. But you just, you know, like, you're just like, man, 60 hours a week for my job. And then what? At the end of your 20 years, somebody gives you a retirement party with some cake and maybe a gold watch? You're just running hard after your hobby, just chasing, just pursuing all of your money, all of your time, down on the treasure, and then what? Maybe you'll be the best weekend warrior at the gym? Preaching to myself. You just chase after so many things that, that are never going to satisfy us. They don't even satisfy in the, us in this life, much, much less will they satisfy us in eternity. And by the way, there is a sort of zero-sum game at work here. So all of this time, talent, and treasure that you spend investing in these worthless things is time, talent, and treasure that you're not spending investing in the glory of Christ. You are finite. You have a finite source of energy, which means that when you spend all of your energy chasing after these worthless things, you're not going to have much less left over to run this race. But this race is the only thing worth running. This is why Paul says he buffets his body. This is why Paul says he counts everything as loss. You think about that? He goes, the prize at the end of this tunnel is not worth it. When Paul saw the glory of Christ that he realized he was going to be drawn into, he realized that everything else was done, dung. And so he ran hard. He pumped his arms, he lifted his legs. He was striving, straining, lunging towards the finish line. We could meditate on the glories of this promise really for the rest of our sermon, but we have a lot more ground to cover. So I want us to take another look at one more aspect of this race metaphor that Paul employs. This idea of forgetting what lies behind in order to strain towards the prize at the end of uh, at the finish line. So in verse 13, Paul draws our attention to get us to focus. He says, this one thing I do. When you're reading the Bible and someone makes a statement like that, it's good for you to pause and take note of it, right? Paul is talking about his strategy. How is he going to make sure he runs the race to get to the prize? And he says, here's, here's the one big thing I do. So when you see that, it's time to like, lock in, pay attention. So what is the one thing he does? He says, I forget what lies behind so that I can strain forward and keep my eyes on the prize ahead. Now, there is um, some debate about exactly what it is that Paul says he refuses to look back on, right? Some say that Paul says he's not going to look back on his life of chasing righteousness through works of the law. Some think that it's that plus he's not going to look back on the mistakes that he's made even as a Christian. Seems pretty reasonable. 
Some say, yes, both of those, and he's not even going to look back on the good works that he's done since he's been saved by grace, basically all the things that grace has allowed him to accomplish. I I really do think the answer to this question, what what is he refusing to look back on, I, I think it's all of this. And in order to see why, I think we need to dig deeper into this race metaphor. Um, how many of you guys have run track in here? What, two? What, three? Okay, timid. Must not have been very good. Just, just yeah. Okay, well, you can, okay. Two steps and you're at the finish line. Dan. You can come correct me after this. I think I did some good research on how runners run. From what I gather, every high-level runner on the first two pages of my Google search, knows that you should never, especially at short distances, look back during a race. There, there you go. It has been confirmed. I, I remember I did watch, I was, I was watching the Olympics with a guy who was a runner at a, at a church. It was like an Olympics like luncheon party thing, and we went there. And the guy was rounding the corner, and he was, he was getting ready to win, and he did win. And the guy that I was sitting with wanted him to win, and he didn't celebrate. And I was like, oh, why aren't you happy? He goes, man, he looked back. I said, why, why does that matter? He goes, you never look back. You never look back in a race. And there are a couple reasons for this. The first reason is you might give your opponent a psychological advantage, right? Your opponent might see you look over your shoulder and see it as a sign of weakness, like maybe you're running out of steam, right? And you're trying to see how hard do I have to push in order to stay in the winning spot, or even in the number two or number three spot, right? They could consider it to be a tell. And even if you're not running out of steam, even if you're not weakening, even if you can run just as hard for the rest of the race, they might see that and perceive you to be weakening, which will cause in them a strengthening, They might go, oh, he's getting weak. I'm going to go for it. And they might find a second win that they would not have otherwise had. Another reason why you shouldn't look over your shoulder is because it takes you out of, like, prime mechanical alignment, right? When you're at the very peak of race performance, every last detail matters. Which means that when you take your head and turn it 180 degrees, do you see what happens with my body when I do that? Right? In order, or maybe better neck mobility would help. <laughs> but either way, like, that's not how you run as fast as humanly possible. You don't look behind you and run as fast as you can. You cannot do both at the same time. Finally, a runner should not look back for his own mental advantage. When you run, you're supposed to run the race that you can run. The absolute best race that you can do. When you run like this, the location of other people on the track won't affect you, right? Because you're not running at a speed that's based on their position. You're running the best race that you can run. So, what Paul says, knowing all this apparently, is that there's nothing you can gain in your spiritual race by looking over your shoulder at the past. You can look... Look over your shoulder at your past failures or your past successes. Either way, it's not helpful. Just consider, if you look over your shoulder at your failures, they might unnecessarily discourage you and slow you down, even though Christ has already paid the price for your failures on the cross. I'm sure we all know that one Christian person who, like, they would just, they would just do so well. They would run so well in this race for Christ. If they could just, like, truly accept the fact that they're forgiven and God's not mad at them. But they just, they just hold on to those past sins, those past mistakes. They can't let it go. And it's like they're wearing a weighted vest. Right? Brothers and sisters, you have to know that God's plans are not frustrated by your failures. God knew you were going to mess up before you knew you were going to mess up. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. So just receive that forgiveness And run the race and forget those sins because God already has. It's really a sublime act of disobedience and a lack of faith for you to cling to the sins that Christ has forgiven you of. Right? You're saying, even though God tells me in his word that I'm forgiven, I'm not going to receive that. In the same way, you shouldn't look back on your successes. 
you shouldn't look back on your successes because your successes because they might wrongly encourage you to let off the gas pedal, right? You might start to feel yourself. You might start to say, oh, dang, I'm kind of killing it. You know, look how much I've done. God's so lucky to have me on his team. This is one of the things that happens whenever someone reaches peak performance, right? They just start to feel like I'm unstoppable. I'm unbeatable. And then what happens? They lose, right? You don't, you don't let off the gas pedal when you're in a race chasing a prize like the glory of Christ, Right? If your eyes are on the prize, it doesn't matter if you've done everything right behind you because you're not even thinking about the things that you did right. You're just thinking about Christ. You go, I'm going to get to Christ as fast as possible. I'm going to be as efficient as possible. The only thing that matters, brothers and sisters, is the next step. So focus on that. Make your next step a good, faithful, God-honoring step. Step according to what God has told you in his word is good, right, and true. Step according to the fellowship of the saints when they come around you and encourage you on this race that you're running, right? Take a good next step, good breathing, good posture, good mechanics, eyes fixed on the prize, one step after another, and before you know it, you'll be at home with Jesus. You can't look over your shoulder and keep your eyes on the prize at the same time. Point number three, Paul's confidence. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Then there's that word because. Circle, underline, highlight that word. Why does Paul press on? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Mm. Paul says that his motivation to make Christ his own, that is to run this race hard and to get to the finish line, is the fact that he's already run the race. The, The race is won. Now this kind of reasoning may seem strange to you if you're not super familiar with grace, right? If you're not super familiar with grace, you've been trained to think about a relationship with God like, um, like an inn, right? You start here and you have, to, you have to work, you have to go up. Wait, I'm going to mess this up. I'm just, this is not in my notes, and I'm going to mess it up. Me, uh, men in black, memory erased. All right. But you get what I'm saying, right? The, you've been trained to think like, I have to do good, and then, and then God will like, accept me, and he'll give me the ability to like, do things that are pleasing to him. But the opposite is true. Right? The opposite is true. It's the fact that he's already loved you and made you his own, that you can do anything that's pleasing in his sight. So just listen to these two other texts that kind of show you this, this grace way of thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says it like this. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Right? Paul says, I don't know fully. I strive to know fully. I trust that one day I will know fully. And I know that because I've already been fully known. Or consider just very simply 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Right? The examples could be multiplied, but the idea is the same. This is grace-empowered perseverance. We work because of the work that he's already done on our behalf. The only reason we can ever think or do or be anything good is because God has already been good to us in Christ. We work because of Christ's work for us. We strive for holiness because we've already been made holy. We live lives of righteousness because we have already been counted righteous in Christ through his work on the cross. We lay hope of the resurrection because, believe it or not, the Bible says we have already been raised with him. It may not feel like it every day, but it's true. This is so important. This is so important. This is the difference, I think, between religion that's pleasing to God and religion that hurts people and perhaps even leads people to hell, right? If you think that you can take a hold of Christ in any way 
without him first taking hold of you, you've just got the concept of grace exactly backwards. I know that's how it may feel to you in your experience, but when you stop and you look back, even on your own conversion, on your own testimony, I don't think you would say, yeah, I was out there just trying to lay hold of Christ. No, most of us were like living in the world, following the prince of the power of the air, pursuing the lusts of the flesh, right? We were just chasing after hell, and then Christ came and he laid hold of us. And it was only after he snatched us up by the neck, after he pulled us like a log out of the fire, that we could then begin to love him, follow him, and obey him. This idea that the only reason we can run the race is because Christ has already run it before us, that's not just some like cool preacher thing that I'm doing with the text. That just comes directly from the Bible. Listen to this language from Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, Let us run this race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's his prize, ran the same race. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The only reason we can run this race is because Christ has already run it before us on our behalf. So brothers and sisters, run by faith. Point number four, your maturity. Your maturity. Russell Wilson, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, those are the only sports names I know. No. These are some of the best athletes in the world, and they would all say that one of the things that set them apart is their investment in sports psychology. Why do these men spend millions of dollars on sports psychology, on, on mindset training? Well, it's because mindset matters. You may have all of the skill, all of the ability, all of the talent in the world, but if you don't know how to think well about it, if you don't have the right mindset, you may never be able to take full advantage of the talent you have, right? An easy example of this is the, the naturally gifted athlete on the team who's just lazy. He has no work ethic, right? He doesn't want to memorize the plays. He doesn't want to come do the workouts, right? So this idea that mindset matters I think what Paul is saying in this text, and I'm going to show you where in a minute, I think he's saying that this also applies to grace. So the Bible goes to great lengths to train us to think about the application of grace in our lives. In verse 15, Paul says this. Look at verse 15 with me. He said, let those of us who are mature think this way. You guys see what I'm getting at? Learn to think like this. If you are maturing in Christ, you should be thinking like this about God's grace. You already have it. Now you need to exercise maturity in your thought process as you think about how to apply it to your life. Now listen, I know it may feel a little strange to get to the heart of the sermon so late in the sermon, but I really do think it's right here in point four that we get to the main thing that Paul is driving at in these four verses. Paul wants the Philippians, which means that God wants you and me to have a mature mindset as believers. He wants us to have maturity in our thought process. Immature believers will say, it's already mine in Christ, so I don't have to chase hard after it. Mature believers will say, precisely because it's already mine in Christ, I will chase after it with every ounce of my being. Both types of Christians will make it to heaven by God's grace, but their journeys there will be very different. One will limp all the way to eternity. The other one will sprint. One will produce an abundance of fruit to the glory of God and for the good of the church. The other one, not so much. If you look throughout Paul's writings, this concept of maturity is always in reference to how one thinks about applying the gospel. It's about discernment. It's about learning to think about things from a gospel perspective rather than a worldly perspective. And it's usually contrasted with infancy. Maturity versus infancy. You saw that in our scripture readings this morning. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Brothers... Do not be children in your thinking. 
be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Okay? So, immature, childish thinking is evil. Why is it evil? It's because we're thinking like the world thinks. Right? Instead of putting on the mind of Christ. Now listen, this is application for you, but this is also application for our whole church. Because entire churches can fall victim to immature, childish, infantile thinking. Paul says to the Corinthians a little earlier in his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The whole church at Corinth, which by the way, Paul planted, you know, maybe it's not like he did a bad job, just sometimes these things happen, right? He planted the church and he's, he's trying to pastor them from a distance. He's like, guys, I can't even like reason with you. I'm trying to take the gospel, which you say you believe, and get you to apply it to every area of your life. And it's like, I can't even talk to you people because you're so spiritually immature. You're like babies. Consider earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. So Paul says, listen, those who belong to this world are not mature in their thinking, and therefore they cannot comprehend the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of heaven. Now listen, there's a little play on words here in the Greek that that, uh, you can't see in the English. We should explore it for a second. In verse 12, the word perfect, right? Paul says, not that I'm already perfect, It's the same word that's translated into mature in your English Bibles in verse 15. And that's a a good translation choice. It it makes sense in the English language. But but there is a little bit of a wordplay thing that Paul is doing here that you can see in the Greek that I want to point out to you. And let let me tell you what he's doing. He's telling the Philippians that although they are not fully mature in Christ, their thinking should be because they have the mind of Christ. Right? They haven't been resurrected, but their thinking should be resurrected. Right? They have the mind of Christ. The Spirit of God is living in them. They should be thinking like that's true. Guys, this is huge. This is a big part of Christian maturity. A, a big part of Christian maturity is our ability to recognize that we have not reached full maturity. Right? I don't know one single mature Christian in this church, myself included, All I know is a bunch of people who are maturing in Christ by his grace. And you get this if we like take it outside of like spiritual matters and just talk about it in everyday. Like if you if you know a young guy, you're sitting there, maybe you're having lunch with him and he he says, uh, yeah, I'm young, which means I'm kind of an idiot. Right. When you hear that from a young guy, you're like, man, this guy's wise right? He's, he's more mature than other people his age. Why? Because he recognizes that he has not arrived at full maturity, which you typically think you have when you're young, right? I meet a 16-year-old and I'm like, congratulations on knowing everything. In the same way, the maturity of mind that we have in Christ calls us to recognize that none of us have arrived at perfection, full maturity this size of the resurrection, But when we recognize that, we strive, we press on to learn to think like Christ. Which takes us back to chapter 1. The thing that I love about the Philippians, is about Paul's letter to the Philippians, is that it it does this. Like it's just constantly reinforcing itself. It it hits the same five or six themes over and over again. A bunch of little cycles there. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul says this. I'm praying for you guys. That's my translation. I'm praying for you, Philippians, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, make this your goal, right? To be mature, to think like this, to, to interpret everything in your life through the lens of the gospel, It is so easy for us to think like the world, to adopt the world's way of thinking in everything, in our health, in our finances, 
in our family, in our education. We're just so constantly in the stream of worldliness that we just sort of do it. We revert to it. It's just our natural reaction, which is why we have to constantly be on guard. We have to be constantly taking every thought captive and submitting it to Christ, bringing every intuition, every emotion, every philosophy, and bringing it back to God's word and saying, is this good? Is this right? Is this true? You're going to say, Sean, that's exhausting, and I'm going to say, amen. It is, which is why so few people do it. It's just easier to just Go with the flow. Even if the worldly flow sounds religious, that makes it a little easier, doesn't it? You just take a bunch of worldly philosophy, put some religious garb on it, your conscience is soothed, and you can just sort of live at peace. But we're chasing after Christ. Christ is guaranteed for us. We want to we image him. We want to be his priests among the nations. We want to speak his truth, live out his truth, be his representatives, be his light, be salt. And the only way we can do that is when we strive constantly for the maturity that he has promised us by his grace. Point number five, God's revelation. Um, you probably like to think of the world as separated into three groups. You've got the optimists, right? The pessimists and the realists. And if you're anything like me, you like to put yourself in the realist category, right? But when I read Paul, I really, do, I really do read in him a realism. I like to think of Paul as a gospel realist. What I mean by that is that Paul interprets all of the circumstances of providence through the eternal truths of the gospel. And then he responds accordingly. So sometimes Paul's gospel realism can feel pessimistic. Sometimes it can feel optimistic, but it's always realistic. So an example of Paul's realism sounding pessimistic in his letter to the Galatians, right? He sounds really down in the dumps about the Galatians, but it's for good reason. The Galatians are abandoning the gospel. His tone should be negative, it should be skeptical. He should be a little down in the dumps. Without the gospel, there is no hope. On the other hand, Paul can also sound like the eternal optimist, unshakable, unflappable. Everything is going to be good all the time. Look at chapter 1, verse 6, right here in Philippians. This is how Paul talks to the Philippian Christians. He says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Persecution, false teaching, false teachers, suffering of all kinds, doesn't matter. I'm confident that God is going to finish what he started in you. That's not naive optimism. It's gospel realism. And I'll show you why. His optimism is grounded in good evidence. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, right? So Paul says, listen, here's the evidence, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul is pessimistic sounding in relation to the Galatians because he has good evidence for his pessimism. He is optimistic sounding towards the Philippians because he has good reason to be optimistic. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 3. And look at verse 15. Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, excuse me, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Man, it sounds so optimistic. Paul is confident that if there is any immaturity in the Philippians, that God is going to remedy it. He is going to make them more mature. He's going to fix it. You know, the guy who discipled me uh, for a little while, who had the most influence on me, he's known as being an eternal optimist, especially in his discipleship relationships. But I don't think he is. I think he's a gospel realist. I think he loves to bring in young guys who are a little rough around the edges 
and let them learn how to lead under his loving care because he has internalized this mindset from the Apostle Paul. The mindset that says, I really believe that the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of God's people. I believe that if there's immaturity, he's going to fix it and make them more mature. I believe that if there's sin that's not being uncovered, he's going to uncover it. And he's going to work on it. And he's going to fix it, right? If there's some cancer in the church that needs to be cut out, he's going to do it so that we are holy as his representatives, right? I think that's gospel realism. We're going to come back to that in a minute. For right now, let's take a minute to consider how this actually works, Like, what are the mechanics of God actually making us more mature and revealing our ignorance to us so that he can correct it, right? He doesn't do it through dreams, like, hey, you shouldn't be watching Game of Thrones, right? He doesn't do it through whispers in the night. He doesn't do it through a special revelation from an angel. He does it through the work of his Holy Spirit living in our hearts. I want to show you that from two texts. Uh, The second one, building off of the first. The first one is from Matthew 16. You can turn there in your Bibles. Turn there to Matthew chapter 16. As you're turning there, let me give you the setup. Peter is asking the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? And they, they give him a bunch of wrong answers. You're Elijah, you're John the Baptist. And then finally he gets... To Simon Peter in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow, good job, Peter. You got it right. Praise God, you finally did something. He did something right for once. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Why? Because you got the answer right? No. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Simon Peter got the right answer. Okay, he knew who, he, there was some immaturity in his part. He, he didn't fully understand who Jesus was, but eventually something happened, it clicked, and he, he knew Jesus is the Christ. And the first thing that Jesus says to him, once he gets that right, is he says, you know this because God worked that in you. He worked it in your heart. We have no record of Peter receiving a vision or a miracle. I mean, he had the incarnate Christ with him. But by the way that Jesus is talking, Jesus is not the one who revealed that to him. I mean, he has been doing that in so many ways, but nobody was understanding what Jesus was saying throughout his whole ministry when he was revealing himself. So how did it finally click for Peter? Because the Holy Spirit from the Father worked it in his heart. Now, to to prove that out to you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, where I think Paul sort of lifts the hood and and gives us an even more clear view of the mechanics of how this happens. Ephesians chapter 1, also in verses 16 and 17. Coincidence? I think not. Now, guys, I don't ask for much, but when I make little jokes like that, I need something. You know what I'm saying? I know it's a long sermon. You're hanging on by a thread, but I'm giving you my good stuff. All right. Ephesians 1, verses 16 and 17. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, notice the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know. And then he goes on to list a bunch of these things that they should know as they continue to mature in Christ. So Paul says that the way that the Philippians are going to, excuse me, the Ephesians are going to mature in Christ is because the Father gave the spirit to work that maturity in them. Do you see that? So brothers and sisters, Paul has a kind of gospel confidence in relation to this church and these Christians, which means that you should have a kind of gospel confidence in your walk with the Lord and in your life in the church. You should have a kind of confidence that says, I really do believe that the Spirit of God is truly at work in the hearts of all of his people. 
to grow them into maturity, to open the eyes of their heart, to help them to understand everything that they need to understand pertaining to life and godliness. This should affect every aspect of your Christian walk. It should affect all of your relationships. Parents, think about how you raise your children in light of this truth. If your children are are, if you have good reason to believe that they are truly regenerate and you're Christian, and they're, excuse me, and that they are actually Christians, right? And as you're trying to disciple them, ooh, it's, it's hard to let off the gas pedal, right? It's hard to let them out from under your thumb because so much of your work thus far has been like discipline and boundary setting and very intensive and intentional training up. But as they get older, you have to let off the brakes a little bit. You have to remove your hand a little bit. And you have to hope and pray that they're actually going to do the right thing, that the training is going to pay off. Now that's really hard if your children aren't Christians, right? That's, an, that's another challenge that I'm not going to address this morning. But if your children are Christians, you can look at them and say, Lord, I really, really, really want to try to control them and to make them do the right thing here, but I understand that that's not in sync with the way the new covenant works, and I just need to entrust them to you. I just need to believe that your Holy Spirit working in their heart is actually going to lead them into a life of righteousness, even if it doesn't happen the way that I want it to happen, according to my schedule and timing, right? Uh, We need faith to do it, though. Think about the way that this affects your marriage, if you're married, right? The Bible says that we're supposed to live with one another in an understanding way, which is really hard because we're sinners, Right? And so often in marriage, you'll see a sin in your spouse that they cannot see in themselves. You'll see an issue of immaturity, and you just you beat your head up against the wall trying to fix it because it's bothering you and it's affecting the peace and stability of the home. And, and you try and you try, and sometimes your, your, your methods are not exactly godly. Sometimes they're carnal. Sometimes you try to manipulate and you try to bribe and you try to, if you're a man, sometimes you try to be domineering. Or maybe if the domineering doesn't work, then you end up becoming passive and thinking that pouting will work, right? The point is, at the end of the day, if your spouse is a Christian, you just have to trust that the Spirit of God lives in them and that the the God that you serve and that you love, He's going to sanctify them in the same way that He's sanctifying you, right? And in my case, He's done it much faster with my wife. So I just try to trust in the work that God is doing in her life. Think about how this works with discipleship relationships in the church, right? Usually when you're discipling someone, it's because you're a little bit more mature than they are. This, this is not like, this shouldn't be controversial. No, we're all equal. Yeah, we're not. If you've been saved for six months and someone's been saved for 16 years and you've like not really been discipled and they've been like really well discipled for a couple of decades, they are more mature than you, whether you realize it or not. And if you don't realize it, that's evidence of your immaturity. Now, if you're discipling someone who's less mature than you, sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes you can want sanctification to work in their life in such a way and at such a speed that God has not determined for them. So as you're working through issues in their life, you tend to get frustrated or discouraged. And you you think like, what's... I've had this conversation with you like 50 times and I've done the Bible studies and we've prayed and we have accountability and we're reading books together and the elders have talked with you and I don't understand how you're not getting this. Some of the sweetest moments in my discipleship over over the years has been when I have just by my own strength and power and wisdom come to the end of myself and trying to lead some, someone down a particular path for the sake of righteousness and it just fails again and again and again and then I, I just end up being moved out of their lives and they get it. Now why is that sweet for me? Isn't that frustrating? Right? There's this one girl I discipled. I swear I must have taught her this one thing like 50 times and then she moved to another city. She started getting discipled by some guy and the guy told it to her and the first time she got it and then she called me and she said, you're not going to believe what I learned today. Revolutionary. Just truly, it just has completely changed my Christian walk. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, wow. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. Right? But why is that, I mean, in the moment it's frustrating, but why is that ultimately satisfying? Because God did it. And he did it in such a way that I can't glory in it. And boy, I will glory in it. 
none of you should let me know how I've helped you because I will take the glory all for myself, right? But we can just trust the Lord in our discipleship relationships. Just because you can't do something in someone doesn't mean that God isn't going to do it in them. You can take this and even apply it to your relationships with your pastors, right? I don't know if you know this, but uh, we, like Paul, have not arrived, right? We have not made perfection our own. We are still sinners just like you, which means that you will sometimes be frustrated with us. And honestly, as the main teaching and preaching pastor in this church, the person who has the public platform most often, what that means is you'll probably, most people in the church, if they're going to be mad at the elders or frustrated with the elders or disagree with the elders, it's typically going to come at me. It's the job I signed up for. I'm not complaining. But that's just the way it works, right? But you can have confidence that if there's some aspect of our teaching ministry or some, even if you see some weakness in my character or in the character of other elders, or there's something about the way we do our philosophy of ministry in this church, or if there's some aspect in the church culture that you don't think is exactly right and you think it's the elder's fault, yes, of course, come talk to us. We want to talk with you. We want to hear from you. We want to listen and learn from you. But maybe you try that and it didn't, we didn't agree. It didn't go the way you thought it would and, and you were praying you can trust that the Lord is maturing us in the same way that he's maturing you. The Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and lives. I can't tell you how many times I've been like, oh, that member who told me that in the moment, I, I didn't quite see it, but now I think I do see it. Thank you, Lord, for revealing that to me, right? So you can trust that if there's an issue with the elders in this church, the Lord can and perhaps will work that change in us. And then finally, work this application in your own life, Right? You should really and truly believe that maturity is yours. Do not let this idea that you will never reach perfection this side of heaven lead you to believe that you will not grow increasingly in that direction. You will. You can. I've seen it time and time again. It's one of the greatest joys of my job, right? I just get to see people growing in Christ all the time. This issue with parenting, it was a disaster, but it got better. This issue in your marriage, I thought, man, this is hopeless. And maybe not in six months, but in like six years, like you really turned a corner. And this addiction that you were struggling with, man, I tried my best to pastor you through it, but I just didn't really have an answer. But guess what? God did. And in some way that none of us could have ever expected, you had victory over that sin issue in your life, right? So just believe the promise of God that says that his Holy Spirit is alive and active in your heart, leading you into greater and greater maturity for the glory of Christ. Now guys, I know it's easy for me to say just trust. And I know it's hard to trust. That's why it's called faith, right? Faith is it's not what we see right in front of us. It's what we believe God promises. Even if we can't see the outcome, we, we promise that he's going to do it. Sorry, sorry. We believe the promise that he's made that says that he will do it. And so what is the ground of our confidence? How can we, how can we trust? How can we have this hope? We can have it because of Christ's finished work on the cross. Right? Remember, all of the members of the Trinity are working together to bring about this desired in, which is all of God's people with God in his glory, enjoying him forever. The father elected and predestined and adopted us in eternity's past. And then he sent his son to live the perfectly righteous life that we could never live on our behalf. And he did that. And then we killed him. But even then on the cross, when he shed his blood in our place, he was paying the sacrifice for the sins that we should have paid. For, right? Like he died the death that we should have died. And, and then God, as a seal of approval for his ministry, raised him up from the grave, right? To show, yes, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. And his work is good and right and true. And it is finished. Which means that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is guaranteed. The Father didn't elect you and predestine you just to leave you dangling out in midair. The son didn't come and live a perfectly righteous life for you and then give his life for you on the cross and die and resurrect for nothing. He did all of that so that the Holy Spirit would apply all of the benefits of the gospel to your life and lead you all the way home. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder what hope do you have? Right? Because what I just laid out here for these people is like this idea that like, 
our eternity is figured out because God has been kind to us in Christ. Which leads me to wonder, what are you looking for? What, what ground of assurance do you have that things are going to be okay tomorrow or the next day or the next day or the next year or when you die? That's the thing. Christ came so that you can have hope for tomorrow, so that you can have confidence that you can be the very best version of yourself, not in a shallow, worldly way, but in the best, most biblical way, so that you can become like Christ because you're with him forever. So I want you to know that he makes that offer freely to you today, and there is no cost. You just turn away from your sin, you trust in Christ, and this can be yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, as Jonathan prayed earlier, we are truly unworthy of the glory that you're calling us into, but we have it nonetheless, and so we praise you. We give you all honor, all glory. We give you every good thing because you deserve it. In the, in the mighty, glorious, beautiful, perfect, righteous, holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.